morning, everybody. So today, I won't take on another topic and discuss it like I did last week. I will try to stick to the book. I'm not certain, but I'll try. And then also to invite uh, everybody who's, who's listening, uh, on Christmas Day, our Abbey Habit, or custom, or whatever, what? Tradition. tradition. Yes, our Abbey tradition is uh, we all read this book together, you know. I mean, not out loud. Everybody reads at their own speed, but we gather together in the morning, and then we we read uh, Shanti Deva's text the, from beginning to end, however long it takes. And it's a, a really wonderful practice to do, you know, once a year and then dedicate the merit for, you know, the peace, the temporal peace and ultimate peace of of all the sentient beings. So let's uh, visualize the merit field in front of us and ourselves surrounded by all the sentient beings. Let's cultivate our motivation. So we often hear it said that we are a freedom-seeking people, that everybody likes freedom. Nobody likes to be confined. When we take this in a worldly way, then things can get very tangled up in terms of what we see as limiting our freedom. But when we understand this in a spiritual way, what limits our freedom becomes quite clear. The self-centered mind and the self-grasping ignorance. So remedying them does not entail criticizing others. It does not entail revolution or politics. It entails, first of all, seeing the disadvantages of the self-centered mind and the self-grasping ignorance. And then second, over time, diligently applying the antidotes to remedy these two. So doing that is very much an internal process that only we can do for ourselves. 
Nobody else can do it for us. So so it's important to really sit with that for a while and internalize that so that we shift how we are looking at our lives and what kind of activities we need to engage in to attain the kind of happiness and peace that we want. when we really see the disadvantages of the self-centered mind, then that gives us the energy to counteract it. When we don't really see the disadvantages, but instead we say, I'm bad because I'm selfish, then we don't really have the proper attitude And we aren't going to really abandon the self-centeredness. We'll still cuddle it, but in a slightly different way. So let's really see the faults of the self-centered mind and the benefits that accrue to us and to all beings when we cherish others. And may that become our motivation for attaining full Buddhahood so that we can benefit all beings most effectively. Yesterday I had uh, two little experiences that really uh, made me think about anger and, uh, yeah, the disadvantages of anger and how to deal with anger. So I want to relate these experiences just uh, not because I like talking about myself so much, but because... Uh, There are examples that maybe you can use of noticing things that happen in your life and then seeing how uh, the Dharma applies to them and then being able to use the Dharma to help you in those situations uh, and not only help you in those situations, but deepen your Dharma understanding. Okay, so the first one was um, a discussion I was having with a few people, and it came out in the discussion, uh, and this has happened to me many times too, that somebody says something to us, 
uh, they want a, a response quickly. We don't really have time to, to think, to, to understand what they're asking and to think about if we're going to do that or not. But they may say what they're saying in a certain tone of voice, you know, and we find ourselves reacting to that tone of voice. Yeah. So we haven't had time to digest the content, but, you know, we get the feeling either that they want an answer right away or they want us to do something and they're going to be upset if we don't follow their instructions. And how people react to that instead of the content. So I think very often we may find ourselves on both sides of that interchange. Yeah, maybe somebody's saying something to us and we are reacting to their tone of voice or their facial expression. We haven't had time even to absorb what they've said, but it's just I don't like people talking to me that way. So even if you're saying, uh, I will give you a hot fudge sundae and everything you want to eat for 15 years because we hear that in a tone of voice like this, we say no. <laughs> okay. We've been on that side of it, haven't we? Yeah. Well, we just react to, to, to what the body language and the voice. We've also been on the other side where we are oblivious to our body language, our facial expressions, our tone of voice. And we say something and then we wonder why somebody is not going along with what we say and not doing what we want. Because we think, oh, but I just asked them a very simple thing. Or I just told them a very simple thing to do. Why are they, you know, being so belligerent? Because we're totally unaware of how we're coming across. Yeah? Because we may be more intent on, I want this person to do this, rather than on figuring out how to communicate with somebody else. And I think this is very much what uh, nonviolent communication is getting us to do, is to slow down and become more aware of our own self and how we speak to other people, because that may explain why we receive the answers we get that we don't like. It's because we're unaware of how we're saying it, and people are reacting to that. And we can understand why they're reacting to that when we flip the situation and we see that we do the very same thing. Okay? So I was thinking, you know, I noticed we were talking about the situation, and I was thinking how much, you know, if I'm on the side of somebody asking me to do something or asking me a question and wanting a response and how I just react to the sound or, you know, the, the tone of voice, the body language, there's anger in my mind because it's like, leave me alone, you know? <laughs> um, there's anger arises. And also when I'm on the other side of it 
and I'm asking somebody something, and they react to me with, no, I don't know. And then I get mad at that, too. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, we've been bone on both sides of it, and we're totally unaware of how we are, how our own body is and mind are reacting to the situation. Yeah, and we get aggravated or mad. And yet, if we slow down and observe, we can see, oh yeah, I've been on that side of it, I've been on the other side of it. Yeah. Maybe if somebody's talking in a certain way, I can just think that, you know, they have something going on in their mind. They're not really trying to boss me around. I don't need to react to that. And the person who's speaking can think, well, you know, why is this person reacting this way? Well, look at how I'm speaking. And they're reacting to that. So why should I get mad when they reply to me in the way they do? Okay, is communicating? Yeah, and and to slow down and and observe that, and and understand what's going on with the other person, because it's the same thing that goes on with us when we're in that situation. And then we can really have some empathy for the other person. And we can stop the anger from arising before it even comes, because we have that understanding. Okay? So that was one little anger lesson that I learned yesterday. Okay? Of course, being more aware is a whole other ball game. You know, I understand that mechanism. Does that mean I'm always going to be aware when I'm in that situation? No. Okay, does that mean the other person's always going to be aware? No. So here we are, rocks in a tumbler. And hopefully when we knock against each other, because neither of us are aware we go back and sit on the cushion and we look at the situation and then we understand, well, you know, how we were responding and how we were speaking and then, you know, apply the antidote at that moment, you know, and then maybe go back to the other person later and say, I'm sorry for how they, I reacted. Yeah. Okay, so that's one. Then the second one, okay, nice little anger situations all coming within the span of a couple of hours. Just the kind of thing you want. Okay, so then somebody, <laughs> I get an email. Ah, da, 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 somebody wants to do this, we're going to do this, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and I go, why? That isn't necessary. Ah, but somebody, and, and so many people agreed that we're going to do it this way. And I'm looking at the situation and going, we don't need to do that. That's ridiculous. You know? And it, it, it concerned, um, you know, what to do with a material possession. Are we going to buy something? Are we not going to buy something? Okay? So 
you know, those are just, oh, 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 these people, why do they want to buy something? We don't need to buy it. It's for somebody's individual use. They can pay for it by themselves, but no, we don't want them to use their money to do that. But if we give it to them, then everybody wants the same thing. And But no, but some people don't want that, but they want to use their money in another way. And then our everything will fall apart because every we go back to I want what I want when I want it, and I'm going to do what I do when I do it, and mm, to everybody else, you know, when you, you see long term, okay. And, of course, you know, I have to be where the buck stops, yeah? And so I have to be the one that says, okay, no. Um, yeah, delightful position. <laughs> Yeah, everybody who wants to be abbess, I will give it the position to you. It's a wonderful position to have, really. You know, everybody comes to you with, well, I won't go into that. But anyway, okay. And then this morning before I came, um, I've been editing uh, one of Venerable Wuyen's talks, you know, to, to make it into a book that, Venerable uh, Damcha has translated. And Venerable Wuyen is talking about the forfeiture lapses. And she's saying that, that and this concerns, uh, you know, robes and bowls and material possessions and so on. And sometimes when you read it, it's like, you know, this, huh? Um, you know, why, why did they have all these problems? You know, like if you could, you know, the cavatina has been given up and you have an extra piece of cloth, you can only hold it for so long and then you have to give it away in pure giving. But we just did pure giving and we're scratching our heads like, what in our world? And, um, yeah. Okay. But then what Venerable Wuyen does, she explains that you the, you have these precepts, but really the back thing behind the precepts are we live as a community and how do we share requisites? It's not so important whether it's a robe or a piece of cloth or, you know, crystallized sugar or... <laughs> You know, all sorts of, you know, your alms bowl and, and these things. But it's like, how as a community do we share resources? And how do we deal with the fact that different people have different needs? And what about if we consider somebody, what somebody considers their need, we consider their want. <laughs> instead of their need, and who covers the cost for what, you know? And when people give donations to the Abbey, you know, uh, do we just, uh, how do we distribute them? Yeah, they give uh, uh, maybe five tubes of toothpaste, and we have many more people than that, and so do we just go down ordination order in the first Five people have get toothpaste, but then every time somebody gives, you know, five, ten tubes of toothpaste, then the people in the, uh, the high, you know, in the front of the line get a lot of tubes of toothpaste, and the people at the back of the line don't get any. Okay, so how, how do you do that? Yeah, 
Or, or do you just draw hats? Everybody puts their name in a hat, and then you draw it, and then that's how you distribute the tubes of toothpaste. But what happens if somebody, you know, doesn't like that kind of toothpaste? They want another kind of toothpaste. Or they want to trade their toothpaste in because they, they would rather have, they need dental floss. They don't need toothpaste. Yeah. So it's, it seems like all these things that we can get into and we, that, you know, when we just hear about a story, we like, what in the world? Why are people making such a big deal about how you distribute toothpaste? You know, who cares? Well, when somebody gives the toothpaste, everybody is interested in how it's distributed because we want it distributed fairly. I want my share of the toothpaste. Okay, so what do we do? Do we cut the tube of toothpaste in half? Yeah, I t- <laughs> And then both people have toothpaste that leaks all over the place. You know, what What do we do? Or do we bargain it, you know? I'll, I'll trade you toothpaste for dental floss. Or do we put it in one place and let people come and take what what they want? But then some people says, well, I need one tube now, and then I'll take one tube for later because I like this kind of toothpaste, and I want to make sure I have a backup because somebody else likes it too. And if they take it before I need it again, then I'll be stuck with a kind of toothpaste I don't like. (laughs) So we laugh at it, but when there's this situation... We take it so seriously, don't we? And the, what happens to that toothpaste becomes incredibly important. Why? Why? What are the principles behind this kind of thing? How we, how we share toothpaste? Huh? Yeah, self-centeredness. Yeah? I get it. I get the first no. I get to say no first. Yeah. I get to say no first. But I get to say yes first, too. Yeah? So, you know, and then, okay, so... Here's one, I mean, trivial things. What does it really matter? Who gets the toothpaste that somebody donated today? Yeah? We do. (laughs) And how we get angry about those things and how our sense of fairness you know, this childlike fairness of, I don't know about you, okay? I'll tell you what happened with me and my brother. My sister was much younger, so it didn't happen with her. But me and my brother were close. We were three years apart, and I was the oldest. So when our folks were away, and I was in charge of heating up the chicken noodle soup, the Campbell's chicken noodle soup, Okay, that we were going to have for dinner. 
And we both liked the noodles. But how are we going to distribute the noodles so that we have an equal number of noodles? You know, because I don't want my brother to have one more noodle than I have. (laughs) And he did not want me to have one more noodle than he had. So this became a sticking point in our relationship. (laughs) You know, and then when they came out with TV dinners, yeah, do you remember TV dinners? So, you know, we, we, then we either didn't have the chicken noodle soup. That was in the days when I was having, wasn't a vegetarian. But we had TV dinners. And there were certain TV dinners that both of us liked more than other ones. <laughs> but there was only one of those. And then many of the ones we didn't like as much. So who got that? Okay. So we ha- there's all sorts of things behind this. The self-centered attitude, our idea of fairness, greed. Dare I mention greed? Yeah. When we talk about seeing impermanent things as permanent... This is an example of it. How long are those noodles going to be in your bowl? As short of a time as possible, because you want them in your stomach instead. But we're seeing them as permanent. So if somebody else gets them, then for eternity I do not have them. The concept seeing the fowl as beautiful, yeah, What are these noodles going to become? Okay, but we think the noodles are beautiful, even though what they become is not. Okay. The idea that what is unsatisfactory, dukkha in nature, is happiness. Yeah, those noodles were happiness. Yeah. Don't you still dream about Campbell's noodles in chicken's noodle soup now, they bring so much happiness forever. There's happiness inside of them. Yeah, right? And there's so much happiness in getting your equal share plus one extra noodle. Okay, you see what you, those of you who didn't have siblings, what you're, what you missed. Yeah. So you do it here when you come here instead. Um, (laughs) But so did the people who had siblings. Yeah. Okay. So yesterday afternoon, one of these situations of how we solve something about a material resource come, you know, I I hear how people decided to solve it, and I said, that's ridiculous, and, you know, we don't. I didn't say that. I thought that. What I said was, no. 
and then <laughs> no, I didn't say that. I emailed no, so you know, hoping they didn't hear my tone of voice, but I'm sure they did, because the reply I got back was but 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 but. Okay, so what was interesting for me was how aggravated I was yesterday afternoon because I wanted to work on Venerable Wu Yin's book. And instead, I'm going back and forth with emails about this thing of how, how about resources, you know? And I'm just like, oh, what? Why can these people think sensibly and solve it themselves? And why do I always have to step in and da, 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 da. they just gave, they even gave a thing about thinking outside the box and then the, all they did was think inside the box quite literally in this example you know and, and so yeah so I had to calm myself down yesterday afternoon um, and then this morning I was reading what Venerable Wu Yin said and it was like so interesting how she took that thing of these precepts and really expanded that into, you know, looking at desire and needs and fairness and wants and, you know, and, and it became kind of an interesting puzzle, you know, because she's asking all these questions about how do we solve this problem? You know, somebody needs really warm clothes, you know, and somebody else doesn't. So do you get warmer clothes for the person who needs them? You know, but everybody else has thinner clothes, but they're okay with thinner clothes. But this person needs, so you give them what they want. Anyway, it was like really kind of like a puzzle, and I like puzzles. So these kind of puzzles anyway. Um, so it became very interesting. And I, and I was thinking about that. And then I thought, wow, yesterday I really missed the ball. You know, here was a puzzle. And instead of seeing it as a puzzle where I could use my creativity to try and fix it, and I did come up with a solution this morning, which people seem to like. Um, but, you know, instead of seeing it as a puzzle, I saw it as an aggravating problem and got aggravated. And aggravation is a form of anger. Okay? So I was going, boy, I really missed the whole, whole opportunity to play with a puzzle and find a remedy to something that might, you know, really, yeah, be useful. Okay? And yet I wasted all that time getting aggravated and then having to calm myself down afterwards. Okay? So, another very good lesson about anger. Yeah? For me it was, anyway. It's like, okay, don't label things as problems so fast. Yeah? Label them as puzzles, which you like. Yeah? Or label them as opportunities. Yeah, how can I figure this out? I mean, another good example is when my computer does one of its little things, you know, I get so annoyed. Venerable Jigme says, 
Oh, to me, it's like a puzzle. Call me when your computer is like that. I I like dealing with these things and figuring them out. So I call her ASAP, you know, because I'm like, and then she is like so happy to come and fix it. And it's just a thing of how you look at a situation. There's nothing in the situation itself that has to be a problem. Yeah, our mind makes it a problem. And then as soon as we say problem, we get mad. So who makes us mad? Not the other person. Yeah, we make ourselves mad. I can't wait. She has, she's going to ask me, well, how did you solve the problem? <laughs> Actually, I would like to know. <laughs> That is part of my question, but but I wanted to say last night I had a very similar experience. I saw something as a huge problem, and I was so angry, and then I went to meditation, and I just calmed my mind, and suddenly all these solutions appeared, and I'm like, wow, I can be creative about this. So anger really shuts down that creativity. Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, it was just so clear what happened. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when there's anger in the mind, we can't think about anything else. And then so, I was like, yeah, oh, there's no need to be angry. I can just do this. Yeah, so, do this and do that. Yeah, quite creative. But I am wondering about the toothpaste. <laughs> like what, what we would do at the Abbey if that ever happened. Well, it's what we already do at the Abbey. What do we do is we have a space where we put small supplies like toothpaste and deodorant and all this stuff. And then we trust people that when they need it, they come and take what they need. That's how we've solved it. Yeah. Now, if someday we have a thousand monastics here and people offer five tubes of toothpaste, I don't know, maybe get your scissors out and we start cutting <laughs> them into really small pieces. No, but, you know, we... With bigger things, sometimes people give bigger things, like when they give clothes or furniture, something like that, then it goes in the storeroom, and then you check with the storekeeper, who is her, and say, I need this or that, or can I have this or that? And hopefully she says yes. And then we have also the problem you know, this actually comes in a Vinaya context, but it's interesting to talk about here too, is uh, when we had the brooms in, uh, we're making sure that everybody in Gotami had equal rooms. So everybody had a bed, everybody had a bookcase, and everybody had a desk. And Venerable Yeshi uh, very kindly made a lot of those things that we didn't have. So everybody has the same furniture and just as much furniture in their room. And then somebody made the rule, I don't know who, that you cannot take any furniture out of your room because every year we change rooms and the person who moves in that room the following year needs to have one of everything. But then we had some people who said, I don't want a bookshelf or I don't want a desk, or I don't want a bed with a mattress, you know. 
And then somebody else said, but you have to keep them. And that person said, but I actually want more space in my room because I want to do Tai Chi or yoga or stretching. And all this furniture takes up too much room. Why can't I just put it in the storeroom? And so whoever it was who made the decision, I don't know where that rule came from. Somebody made it. There's all these rules that appear around here that I kind of find out about later when somebody has a problem with them. Really? Do we have a rule about that? Anyway, so then then it becomes like, well, what do we do, you know? Like then everybody's going to put their bookshelves back there and and then the next person who moves in the room won't have a bookshelf, but somebody else wants two bookshelves and they don't have enough and there's an extra one. Why can't they take it from the storeroom and put it in their room? And then when we change rooms, they'll put it back and then they're going to move. So let's have a conference about what to do, you know? And it, it's so amazing. And we see this happen all the time in the stand-up meetings. Yeah? One small thing, and everybody has an opinion. Yeah, because after all, in America, we vote on everything. Yeah. Nobody is an autocrat here, except a few people, whose names we won't mention who are all over the news. Anyway, you know, these small things, then they become huge. And we are aggravated and angry because we want our opinion to be heard. And it wastes so much time. It wastes so much time. Okay? But we are very attached to our opinion being heard, aren't we? Yeah? So, and uh, so what I'm saying, the point of all of this is look at the things we get upset about and ask yourself how important they are. And then, also, I think Venerable Kunga's remark is very telling. You know, that when our mind is all obscured with anger and resentment and unfairness, we can't think of any solutions to it. Yeah? When we don't see it as a problem and we don't get angry, then it's much easier to find solutions. So that this is the point. Yeah? And also, of course, to watch how we say something, our tone of voice, our facial expressions, the volume of our voice, and so on. Okay, now let's at least do one verse. (laughs) So we've been talking about, until now, jealousy. Yeah, the last few verses have been about jealousy. Especially when somebody gets something, either a material object, praise, fame, recognition, they get something that we want. Okay? And so we burn with jealousy. 
And again, here's the thing of it's not fair. And what does, you know, our sense of fairness and what does even lie behind that is competition. There's limited resources as if praise and respect and fame are limited resources. And somebody else got them and we want them. Yeah. So competition and how it breeds arrogance if we win, jealousy if we lose, and this very uncomfortable feeling of competition when we're in the middle of it. Yeah. Whereas if we can think in a cooperative way, we might actually do come up with a resolution that is more, um, or a solution that is more satisfactory for everybody. Okay. So that's what we've been talking about so far. Verse 85 carries on for, from this. So why, here's, here's Shanti Devas talking to himself. So why, by becoming angry, do I throw away my merit, the faith others have in me, and my good qualities? Tell me, why am I not angry with myself for not having the causes for gain? Okay? So here we are. We're jealous of somebody. It's unfair. We want it. We deserve it. We have our court case, you know, in which we win. Of course, we are the judge, the jury, and the prosecutor, and there's no defense. Yeah, so we're going to win. Okay. And we get, and we're angry at the person who has it that we don't. And then why at that moment don't we realize how by getting angry we are burning our own merit? That getting our anger does not harm the other person. It harms us. Yeah. Well, maybe they don't like us getting angry at them, but compared to the harm we do ourselves through burning up our merit, what we're doing to ourselves is much more damaging. Yeah, because we're making somebody else unhappy for a few minutes, but we're cutting the causes for our own good rebirths. And rebirths last a long time. Okay. So why by my becoming angry, you know, do I throw away my merits? Don't I want what's beneficial for myself? Why am I doing this to myself? Okay. That's one thing Shanti Dev is asking himself. So I'm not only throwing away my merits, but other people have faith in me and I'm getting angry. And the people who have faith in me, that's the number one way they're probably going to use faith, lose faith in me is by seeing me angry over some stupid agio. Yeah. Either that or they will become, they will join my side and get angry at the same person I'm angry with, in which case I have harmed them by 
spreading my anger to somebody else, getting them to side with me against somebody else. So why am I throwing away yeah, the faith other people have in me by my getting angry and acting like a jerk? Or why do I throw away my ability to influence somebody in a positive way by getting them all wrapped up in my own, you know, resentful machinations, machinations, whatever that word is, okay? So throw away my merits, throw away the faith others have in me, get others involved in a mess they don't need to be involved in, and I'm also throwing away my good qualities. Because when I get angry, yeah, any spirit of, of love and compassion and empathy is out the window. So whatever I've cultivated in my meditation with a lot of effort, then I just throw it out the window by getting angry. So this is what Shandideva is saying to himself. And then he says, tell me, talking to himself, why am I not angry with myself? Because I'm the one who's harming me. And if I'm jealous of somebody else having something which I want, why haven't I, instead of wasting my time and energy being angry with them, why haven't I created the causes to receive those same things myself? Yeah. Yeah. Why am I sitting around here complaining that somebody else has something good when I haven't even exerted any effort to create those causes for myself? I'm just sitting here like a little kid stamping my feet, going, yeah. Did your parents tell you stories of how you did that when you were little? No. Oh, they didn't? Oh. I got reminded a lot, <laughs> you know, of that. And it was good. I think it was actually good that they reminded me of when I was acting like a brat. Yeah, because I was acting like a brat. Just wait until you have your own kids. They're yes. going to do the same, same thing, thing to, to you that you do to, to me. me. Yeah, just you wait. Just you wait. Oh, yeah, I got that one. Yeah, yeah. I think our mothers learned from the same script. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So neither of us had kids. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Of course, you know, when they reminded me of the, you know, the bratty things I did, I didn't like it. But, you know, now looking back on that, I, you know, it's like, well, they were actually right. Yeah. Okay. Then 86, let alone not having any remorse about the wrongs you committed, O oh mind, again, Shantideva, we're talking to ourselves, let alone not having any remorse about the wrongs I've committed, O oh mind, why do you wish to compete with others who have 
committed meritorious deeds. You know, I have no remorse about the ways I've harmed other people and the mean things I've said and how I've manipulated them and how I, you know, deceived my brother so that I could get the extra noodle, you know, or the TV dinner that I wanted, um, you know, let alone not having any remorse. Yeah, well, it starts out with with noodles, but, you know, when we grow up and as, as adults, we do much more devious things and harm people in much more uh, painful ways and deceptive ways, let alone not having any remorse for this, my own wrongs, not confessing them, not purifying them, going through life feeling like I've been cheated and I deserve more than I'm getting. So no remorse for that. And yet, I can meet with people who do meritorious things. So people who are acting in a virtuous way, I can't stand. I've got to compete with them. They cannot be better than me. I cannot rejoice in their virtue because they're getting more acknowledgement for their virtue than I'm getting, even though I'm trying so hard to be virtuous and I'm not recognized for it. That's one great virtuous mind, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah? So why in the world are we competing with other people? I mean, this is why I love Shanti Deva so much. It's like, look at how stupid I'm being. You know, and as soon as I see how stupid I'm being, it's like, I've got to change. Yeah. It's like, I, I cannot go through my life this way. It's too ridiculous. Okay. So you have another little talk with yourself. I mean, this is what he's doing. Okay, 87, even if your enemy is made unhappy. And what's very interesting is the person who we think is more virtuous than us, instead of rejoicing at their merit and respecting them and making them a friend who can be a good example for us, we compete with them and make them into an enemy. So here's this virtuous person who is now my enemy because they're getting more recognition and they're they're more virtuous and they're da-da-da-da-da. Yeah? Okay. So even if that person is more virtuous than me, or even if they aren't somebody who's more virtuous than me, it doesn't really matter. Even if they're made unhappy, What is there for you to be joyful about? Talking to yourself as another person. Yeah. Even that person is made unhappy. How how am I going to benefit from that? Yeah. You're You're merely wishing them to be hurt. Did not cause them to be injured. Yeah. So why am I happy? Oh, I really hope that person messes up, you know, 
when they're doing this exam, or I hope, I hope they fall asleep in the middle of the noonday session, you know, and everybody sees them sound asleep. And you can hear their stomach growling. Oh, I hope they look like that. Then they look like such a bad practitioner. But I'm there, serenely accepting starvation. <laughs> for the benefit of all beings. Yeah. And then everybody's going to look at them and say, Pfft. and they're going to look at me and say, okay? So even if your enemy is made unhappy, what is there for you to be joyful about? If you're merely wishing for them to be hurt, your merely wishing them to be hurt did not cause them to be injured. So my wanting them to fall asleep in the middle of Nune is not causing them to fall asleep. So why am I so happy about it? Well, even if I didn't cause them to fall asleep, they did fall asleep, and they still look bad in front of other people. And I like that. Yeah. Because I'm in competition with them for a good reputation, and they're gonna shoot themselves in the foot. I'm so happy. Yeah. Then Shanti Deva comes back and says to that mind, and even if your enemy does suffer as you had wished, what is there for you to be joyful about? If you say, For I shall be satisfied. How could there be anything more wretched than that? In other words, we're rejoicing at somebody else's misfortune. We're rejoicing at their pain. We're rejoicing at their misery. Is there anything more wretched, more totally disgusting than somebody rejoicing at the pain and misery of somebody else. Yeah, when you think about it, can you think of, I mean, when I think about that, it's like, yeah, I, there, you know, I've got to stop myself from thinking like that. To me, it's like, it's so disgusting to rejoice that somebody else is in pain. Yeah, and to have a sense of self-satisfaction. <laughs> You know, yeah, they got run over by a truck or whatever it is. They lost the election. They, this, this, whatever it is. I'm, you know, I rejoice that they're suffering. That, and you have your little beeps. Okay. That this verse really hits me, you know. This is a verse. Is, oh my God, he's right, you know. This hook cast by the fishermen of disturbing conceptions is unbearably sharp. Having been caught on it, it is certain that I shall be cooked in cauldrons by the guardians of hell. Okay. 
So who's the fisherman and what are the disturbing conceptions and what's the hook? Okay, so ignorance, giving, you know, giving rise to um, distorted conception, also translated as inappropriate attention, meaning are how we misconstrue a situation and misinterpret it, it, giving it meaning that is not in the situation. Yeah, how we do all the time. You remember, I've given many examples. I hope you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so, yeah, so through my misinterpreting things, yeah, and then I get angry, and I do something, yeah, or well, actually, in this, in this case, I'm looking at somebody else do something, or I'm looking at my own behavior and doing something, and judging, yeah, getting angry about it and judging, yeah, this is wrong. This is bad. It should not be like this. I should have it. They shouldn't have it. My way is right. People should listen to me, okay? But having been caught on that and then gotten angry at other people or gotten jealous, yeah, so that fisherman has thrown out the hook. We've bitten the hook, okay? What's the result going to be? Well, what happens when a fish gets caught by the fisherman? It's cooked. So we get cooked in the cauldrons by the guardians of hell. Okay. Why? Not that there's extra guardians. <laughs> the guardians are there waiting to get to us, you know, because these are also created by our mind. But, you know, we... Yeah, we misinterpreted something. We played into the situation. We bit the hook. Okay. Some, when somebody else throws out a hook, that is their responsibility. We usually blame them for throwing out the hook. Actually, that's their responsibility, you know, because it depends what motivation they had when they said that or did that. And it may not even have been a hook from their perspective. They just did some normal action. But we bite the hook. Yeah? We get involved. We respond with our own afflictions. And when we respond, you know, acting mentally, verbally, physically, motivated by afflictions, what's the result? Yeah, we create destructive karma. We face an unfortunate rebirth. Okay, so some, some examples. Do you have certain people in your life, for example, family members, who know you very, very well and who know what your buttons are? And they will say or do things that press your buttons. Yeah? Can you think of situations like that? 
Okay, now first of all, we don't know, are they deliberately, they want to press our buttons? Are they deliberately calculating to do that? Are they doing it out of habit? Or maybe there's no bad intention about it behind it at all, and we've completely misinterpreted the situation. It doesn't really matter what their motivation was. It could be any of those three things going on. Because their motivation is their responsibility. They're accumulating the karma from their action with their intention. Okay. Now they've did, done whatever it is. Yeah. I am sensitive about that. Yeah. It is one of my buttons. Now my buttons are not like these tiny things here. Okay. That your finger has difficulty pressing because your finger is so big and the button is so small. My buttons are big buttons. And they're bright red and they have a sign on them, do not push. And they are in a corridor that is very narrow. And they are ve- they are set off somebody not even by touch, but just by the movement of somebody of the air when somebody walks by them. So somebody walks by my big red button in the narrow corridor that doesn't even need to be pushed with a finger that says, do not push. And what happens? (laughs) Okay. Whose responsibility is it when my buttons are pushed? Whose buttons are those? Are they the other person's buttons? No. They are my buttons. Yeah, these are my buttons. Nobody else gave them to me. My afflictions created them. Oh, but when I was a child, I had this experience and that experience. So it's actually their fault because of all this childhood conditioning that I have these buttons. Yeah, we say that, don't we? Don't we? Yeah. Well, the answer to that is, so what? This may be the way that your buttons came, but what's the, how are you going to remedy those buttons? Yeah. Attributing them, it doesn't matter who you attribute them to. The responsibility for remedying them right now is ours. Nobody else can stop our buttons. Even all that Conditioning we receive from when we were kids, even all those people come and say, I'm so terribly sorry, I'm so terribly sorry, I did this horrible thing. Yeah, that might make us feel a little better because at least somebody acknowledged the harm they did. But that is not going to remove the button. We have to remove the button ourselves by seeing 
how it doesn't make any sense, how it's harmful to us. It does not apply for what's apply to what is happening now, how it's my misinterpretations, my afflictions. Yeah, and I'm the only one who can solve it. Yeah. And that's something good that we can solve our own problems. Because if we depended on somebody else to solve our problems, then we're really lost because we cannot make anybody else do what we want them to do. Even if we say, if they only apologized to us for what they did, then I wouldn't be so sensitive about these things. Their apologizing, apologizing is not going to remove our sensitivity. And even if they do apologize, you know, we still are going to have the habit of misconstruing things. Yeah? So remedying that is our stuff. Yeah. And that's good because if we were waiting, if their apologizing could remedy my sensitivity, then I'm really stuck because I have no power to make them apologize. Whereas I do have power to change what's going on in my own mind. Yeah. So that's good. We should look at that and have confidence in ourselves and say, that's good. I have the power to change these things in myself. And it doesn't depend on somebody else apologizing or any of this other stuff. Yeah, I can solve this using the Dharma tools. That's good. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I don't know if you people have the same reaction to when you think somebody is manipulating you. And I say think somebody is manipulating you because I don't usually describe the situation to myself like that. I say they are manipulating me. Yeah. Actually, I don't know if they're manipulating me. All I know is actually I think they are. So whether they really are or whether I just think they are, yeah, I'm going to react in the same way. Whatever the actual objective truth of the situation is, nobody really knows and I'm never going to know myself. And it doesn't really matter. The point is, as soon as I think somebody's manipulating you, that's one of my, somebody is manipulating me, okay, that is one of my buttons. Okay, I'm giving myself away. Yeah, and I just, I cannot stand it when I think somebody's manipulating me. Okay, and I want to, you know, I want to, call them on it. I want to manipulate them back. I want to catch them in their own game. You know, I want to do something because if they think that they're going to take advantage of me by doing this, forget it. As soon as I think that way, 
I've bitten the hook. I've bitten the hook. Whatever the reason was for what they did doesn't matter because I've bitten the hook. And I am upset and mad and vengeful. Yeah? Whose responsibility is all that? This one's. This one. Okay. So, it, you know, it's very interesting to watch, watch your mind and your responses, you know. And when are we, when are we biting a hook? And do we bite the hook out of habit? Is it really that that situation is so bad? Or is it, first of all, it could be two things. One is we're projecting some kind of horribleness on that situation that it doesn't have happen. Or the situation really isn't that bad and, and there's actually no reason for us to react so strongly to it. Yeah. I'm sure we've all seen other people kind of go ballistic over something we've said or done that is some small thing, and like they're just like, whoa, and we're going, what in the world happened here? Yeah? Well, we weren't throwing out a hook, but they thought we were, and they bit the hook the hook that they themselves put there. Now the question is, we can see that very well when other people have it, but what about us? Do we see when we bite the hook or when we create a hook that we then bite? And then, you know, recognize the the uh what we're doing to ourselves when we bite that hook okay verse 90 the honor of praise and fame ooh don't we all want those praise and fame if other people think i'm wonderful i must be wonderful because i have no ability to evaluate myself at all i totally trust what other people think about me that's really dumb anyway that's how i live okay. the honor of praise and fame oh i like that but then shanti deva says will not turn into merit or life. He is right again. It's true. I may get praise. I may get fame. Yeah? Is that going to extend my lifespan? Is that going to make me healthy? Is that going to give me the merit I need to have a good rebirth or to progress on the path? What good is their praise or honor or fame actually doing for me? When you think, you know, spend some time thinking about the lives of people who are famous. Yeah? And what they go through by being famous. I don't know about you, but 
fame seems a lot more unattractive when I think about what it's really like. Because when you're famous, everybody projects their stuff on you. And everybody thinks they know why. I mean, why you're doing what you're doing, how you really feel. They write books about you. Yeah. You're like a fish in a bowl. They write books about you maybe when you're alive. You know, you're so attached to your reputation. Oh, they'll write books about me after I'm dead. But they don't know what's going on inside of you. They're merely writing what they're projecting you were like. And you think, oh, they're gonna, they're gonna write so many books about me after I die. Oh, I'm gonna be famous. Well, you know, we're gonna be in the lower realm and we're not gonna know anything about that book. And if we read it, you know, we'll say, who are you talking about? This is not like me. Yeah. So, you know, what is really going to benefit us at the time of death? Is it a reputation? Is it praise? Or is it merit? Yeah. What, what, what's a benefit? Okay, so the honor of praise and fame will not turn into merit or life. And from a, a, a perspective of a practitioner, you know, we want a, a long life to be able to practice for a long time, and we need to create merit to progress on the path. Okay, on the honor of praise and fame will give me neither strength nor freedom from sickness, and will not provide any physical happiness. Okay. So people may praise me, I may be famous. Like, take an athlete, yeah? They're praised. Yeah, look at their athletic ability. They jumped over this bar. Whee! Fantastic! They set a world record. Look at this football player, you know? Because now it's the end of the year, they're showing all the best football plays of the year. And here's this one guy. He's leaping sideways, grasping this ball, you know? And he either prevented somebody from getting a touchdown or made a touchdown himself. And he's, he got the picture like this right before he went to floor. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a fantastic athlete. The best play of the year. Is that going to make his body strong? What happens to athletes? They get old and weak. Yeah? And somebody else does better than that in the future so that they no longer have the title they have. Okay? So it gives me, it doesn't give me strength in my body. It doesn't give me freedom from sickness. Yeah? COVID, you know, COVID, COVID common cold, Cold, common cold, okay, kidney disease, you know, fame, praise don't prevent you from having that. And it doesn't give us any physical happiness either. Yeah? You may be famous and receive praise, but is that going to give you a bubble bath? <laughs> Do you really want a bubble bath? 
It's bad for the environment. You waste so much water. Oh, but a bubble bath. <laughs> okay. So, you know, these things, this is really important to think about because, because praise and fame we are so attached to. But to really ask ourselves, what do they give us? Yeah. So can I tell my story that you've all heard numerous times of when, but this is a good story. This is what really turned, and it's not good because it's my story, but it's, it's what, it's a good story because it really turned my mind. Okay. Because I was quite interested in praise and fame. Yeah. And everybody else had it, and I didn't get it, even though I deserved it, even though they were more qualified, but forget that. <laughs> okay. So, uh, His Holiness, this was back in the early 90s, he was giving some teachings in Arizona, and they asked some people to give talk, talks in the evening. So I was one of the people they asked to give a talk in the evening. So I gave a talk. And I think I must have been exceptionally funny that evening. Um, yeah. And were any of you at that talk? No? <sighs> <laughs> but it was such a good talk because the next day, in the you know, His Holiness was teaching all morning, and in the middle of the teaching, he would give us a short pee-pee break. Okay? So... There was pee-pee break. So I'm trying to go to the bathroom to go pee-pee. And all these people are coming up. Your talk was so wonderful. Your talk was so good. I really enjoyed your talk. And then, of course, you have to say, thank you very much. And where are you from? And what's your name? You know. And, oh, your talk is so good. And I'm sitting there with my legs crossed. Can I get to the bathroom? Will you leave me alone? Okay. And at that moment, I realized when you are famous, you cannot get to the bathroom when you need to get there because all these people are stopping to either praise you. you know, nobody came to me with a, a microphone. I'm not at that stage, you know, but the really famous people, you know, you just jumped over this big thing or you just swam faster than anybody else swam. And we want to interview you, and you're dripping wet, and you're cold, and you just want to get warm. But, you know, you got to do this interview. Okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, the people, when, they're, when you're famous, you don't have any, I mean, you lose so much control about your lot over your life. Yeah, because as soon as you have fans, you have to do a tap dance for them. Yeah, because you're hooked. Okay, end of my story. It was a short story, wasn't it? But it taught me something really important. Um, okay, questions, comments? Venerable Kunga, are you going to ask me if I ever made it to the bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I can't actually remember. I must have. 
I must have, because what, uh, what else? What, uh, the other option didn't happen. <laughs> so I must have made it to the bathroom. But I probably arrived back at my seat late, which is not good. Yes? If we can see we're in danger of biting the hook and stop ourselves in our tracks, does it necessarily follow that our habit of that temptation arising will be modified without any further effort? Um, first, you know, is to break the habit of, physic, of, of the instant reaction of biting it. Okay? That's the first step. Then you have to really contemplate the disadvantages of biting it. And you have to really ask yourself, you know, what are you, what am I trying to prove when I, when I bite this hook? Yeah. What am I trying to prove and to whom? So it, yes, it does need more reflection. Yeah. But it starts by stopping it in its tracks. Yeah. That question, isn't the cause of biting the hook in the subconscious, inaccessible part of our mind? No. You know, there may be some time, I think, uh, Buddhism doesn't look at things quite like that. They don't talk about subconscious. They talk about imprints on the mind. Yeah. But a lot of that is habit. Yeah. It's, it's just habit. We, we are just in a habit of doing something in that way. And we've never thought of any other way we can possibly act. And so the beauty of, of seeing this is now to really sit and think, well, why do I have to act that way? I can, I have the freedom to act in a different way and to see the situation in a different way and to feel in a different way. Mm-hmm. Had an aha moment. Ah, good. So over the years as we do Varsa, I'm realizing how uh, beneficial and really beautiful that practice is because uh, we pay a lot of attention to biting the hook or not. And... And so if you just sit with it and don't bite the hook, then, you know, you start working things out instead of just the immediate reaction. So that's very precious. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And that's really the, one of the big benefits of Varsa. And it does happen that sometimes after we work things out in our own mind, it is good to go and talk to the other person because they may have really misunderstood what happened. But the important thing is that we work it out in our own mind first. Because if we haven't worked it out and we go talk to them, actually the fight is going to continue. What? Keeping Keeping silence is a big help. That's why we keep silence during our winter winter retreat. No, that's why we try to keep silence (laughs) in our winter retreat. That's uh, not why we don't keep silence (laughs) in our winter retreat. 
I got to biting the hook. Um, we tend to bite the hook with all the news that's coming out because um, when we already, like, let's say I'm already have a tendency to be anxious about changes in society, you know, disagreements or um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, certain things. Yeah, and unpredictability. Yeah, and um, when I'm reading certain news and I'm reading it without being aware what my mind is uh, getting into it, I bite the hook. Yep. Mm. Yep. And that's why if we are so habituated with biting the hook, yeah, that we can't stop ourselves, it's good to take some distance from the object. But if you're aware in your practice of biting the hook, then reading the news can can be, um, you know, very illuminating and a very good chance to practice. Yeah. Like, how can I read all of this? And, you know, where's it, it makes you ask, ask yourself, where's the anxiety coming from? Because all the stuff we're reading is about bad stuff that could happen. It hasn't happened yet. It may happen. We can't ignore these things and bury our head in the sand. But the question is, why do I need to get angry when I read it? Or not angry, but anxious. Why do I need to get anxious? Yeah. And then what is, what is my anxiety all about? What am I really trying to say when I'm anxious? What am I really needing when I'm anxious? Yeah. Well, I want security and predictability in this, in, let's say in this situation. I want security and predictability. Nothing wrong with wanting security and, and predictability. Nothing wrong with wanting it. Okay, expecting to get it, uh -uh. that's going to lead us down the slippery slope. Okay, and, and so there is where it's good to just stop and say, wait, I'm in samsara. What's the nature of samsara? It's impermanence. Things arise by causes and conditions. I don't know all the causes and conditions. Things are changing all the time. I don't have control. Even if I knew the causes and conditions, I can't control all of them. So given that that's the actual situation, does anxiety do me any good? No. Anxiety doesn't do us any good. It just makes us, it, like what she said, it destroys every opportunity for creativity or, or to be happy. Yeah. I'm going to tell you another story. Even though we're over time, this time I'm talking about my life, which, of course, I know you all want to hear about. But this is actually another good story. So I was talking with another friend of mine who happened to be a famous person, but we were friends, so I didn't really care that she was famous. Um, and that's why I'm telling you. Uh, <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you her name. Anyway, 
we were talking. We hadn't talked in a long time, so we were kind of catching up. And she was telling me what she had been doing. And then I started telling her. I can't remember what was actually going on in my life at that time, but uh, <laughs> what is usually going on in my life, which is, uh, you know, I'm in free fall. I don't really know what the results of what I'm doing is, are going to be, you know? And so I was saying, well, I'm engaging in this project. It must have been maybe around starting the Abbey or something. I can't remember. But, um, you know, saying, you know, I'm doing this. I want to do that, but I'm not sure what's going to happen. I really feel like I'm in free fall. And then it was like, bingo. You know what? I'm in free fall all the time. This is not a new situation. This is not an unusual situation. Samsara is free fall. You know, and so as soon as I thought that, it's like, oh, okay, then I don't need to be apprehensive about this situation because it's really no different from the rest of my life when I believe that things are secure and predictable even though they aren't. Yeah, I'm still in free fall. Because, you know, when things are produced by causes and conditions and they're changing every single moment, yeah, where are you ever going to have predictability? The, the dukkha of all pervasive conditionings that you're cruising along and it only takes one little change of circumstance to throw yeah. everything off the roof. Yep. That's the dukkha of, the, the pervasive dukkha of conditioning. Yeah. That we're always right on the edge there. I'm sorry. Oh, it's one little thing. You know? And yet we don't see it. And so we think, yeah, my samsara is great. Why should I try and get out of samsara? It's actually great. Everything's going well for me in samsara. Oh, okay. I I want to tweak my samsara a little bit here and there. I could have a little bit more happiness. But why should I exert myself and try and get out of it? It's okay. Yeah. And that's, you know, there we really see the extent of our ignorance, how we can't even see how ignorant we are. So we think, like they say in the prayer, you know, we see it as a pleasure grove. Samsara is a pleasure grove. It's Disneyland. It's, you know, whatever you think is heaven. Okay, let's dedicate.